0: Hi, this is the Social Jello with Angelo show. My name's Angelo. I'm a social scientist, surfer, martial artist, and a whole lot of other things. Coming to you live from Kasai City, Japan, the Social Jello with Angelo show. What's up? And thank you for watching Social Jello with Angelo. Or thank you for listening to Social Jello with Angelo. My name's Angelo, as I mentioned earlier in the intro. Today's guest is Ramsey Dewey. Now, I have been working on the Kaju Kembo podcast lately, or the Kaju Kembo series of this podcast. And for the Kaju Kembo series, I tend to follow Kaju Kembo martial arts. If you don't know what that is, it's a Hawaiian martial art. I do encourage you to check it out. watch the, Read the Wikipedia page that was all put together by uh, people much more higher in the hierarchy than me. And the reason I'm interviewing Ramsey Dewey, and I'm including it in the Kaju Kembo Series, even though he is not a Kaju Kembo practitioner. I'm going to make that very clear. But I am going to put it in the Kaju Kembo series, mostly because of the interactions that I've had with Ramsey Dewey and the influence he had on me in my Kaju Kembo journey. So, a little history. Normally, we go right into the show. If you don't like it, skip ahead. Ramsey Dewey's coming up. But let me let you know how I met Ramsey Dewey. I met Ramsey Dewey not on YouTube. Maybe some of you are watching this or listening to this because you know Ramsey Dewey from YouTube. I did not know Ramsey Dewey from YouTube. Giant disclaimer. I actually looked up Ramsey Dewey online. I didn't actually even look up Ramsey Dewey, to be honest. I was looking for a place to do MMA in China. I was going to China, and I know a lot of people go to China to do Wing Chun, or Wushu, and they want to be very traditional on their approach. But I just kind of felt after watching enough videos of there was this guy if you ever want to look it up look up uh look up here i'll i'll look him up right now all right and here it is here's a little bit of footage of this mma guy who's been challenging kung fu masters and uh he's not his name is i'm probably going to butcher this his name is shu Xiaodong, dong and um he's going up to every, a lot of different people that say that they're Kung Fu Masters, and he's pretty much, uh, yeah, he's knocking them out left and right. Now, I really don't care how you, what you feel about uh, traditional martial arts versus uh, modern martial arts, but I am going to say that this, this guy is really exposing uh, some of the problems of people who who may train in a traditional martial art and think that they know how to fight, and that might be very different. From someone who actually trains on how to fight right that's a very it's a very different type of well, how can I say experience nothing against that I like both parts of training if you ever followed me or trained with me you'll know that i've I've done both traditional martial arts and I've also done uh more modern martial arts or combat martial arts like boxing kickboxing and I think that's what you, Kembo that's the bow, right? We got the boxing and kajukenbo. So for anybody who's watching right now and being like, "No, I can't believe you, you're a traitor," uh, it's not that. You know, I, I think there's great benefits that can come from traditional training, but I'm not going to fool myself into thinking that only traditional training is going gonna, is gonna to be able to make me into a better fighter. Uh, I'm hoping that if you have an open mindset, uh, it doesn't matter what you do, uh, if you the open the more open you are to new ideas as a martial artist, or even as a person, be open to new ideas. might be hard at first, but be open to new ideas, because I think that's where innovation takes place. So that's where Ramsey Dewey fits in to the Kaju Kimbo series for my podcast. Check it out. Alright, so I'm here with uh, Ramsey Dewey. Uh, coming out of Shanghai, China uh, I mentioned in the intro earlier a little bit about him. how you doing today, brother?
1: Good, thanks, Rasta man. thanks for having me on your podcast. Oh, no
0: problem. thanks for coming out or digitally virtually coming out and being on the show
1: <laughs> So virtually coming out to Japan man so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah yeah you you said you wanted you were trying to make your way out of here one day, so I figured
1: you know. <laughs> we'd make it happen speaking of japan do you can we can you read kata? Uh, what is this called katakana yeah i can read katakana Japanese. it says here let's see if i can
0: brazilian jiu-jitsu okay. brazilian it jiu-jitsu I, it says brazilian jiu-jitsu okay, that, on that's
1: there. what i that's <laughs> what i thought it said uh there was a company sponsoring the gym and they gave us these t-shirts and i was like man i hope it doesn't say anything stupid like uh you know who knows <laughs> yeah. i have no idea
0: yeah, yeah, they they'll do that too with the Japanese shirts. You got to be careful. But yeah, that one's legit. You're good. Nothing offensive. It's it's nothing nothing rid- ridiculous. It's it's on point.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had a friend who got a a tattoo in Chinese characters that said something along the lines of I'm a stupid white guy who can't read Chinese. So, no.
0: Oh, no. Yes. If there, if there was ever a story of, of why not to get a tattoo in a different country in a language you don't understand, I think that would be a, a good poster board for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, man.
0: So for those of you listening... life lesson. Um, uh, again, Ramsey Dewey is a MMA coach from Shanghai, China. Uh, Ramsey, I'm sure and you have a lot of followers on your YouTube channel, and you've shared tidbits of your story there. And I've personally talked to you and and you've divulged even more of your story. But um, just starting from scratch, I guess, how did you get into martial arts?
1: Oh, man, how did I get into martial arts? I initially got into martial arts because I got bullied and beaten up at school and I wanted to fight back. And so it was, how can I put this? Kids watch movies, like I saw Bruce Lee movies. I saw these action movies, these kung fu movies. And I, in my childhood mind, I thought, that's the solution to my problems. If I could fight like that, if I could punch and kick and do kung fu, I could solve all my problems. And then I would be happy. right? But I lived in a small farming town in Idaho. We had more cows than people, meaning we did not have any martial arts schools. So um, I made my way to the local library where there were about six books on martial arts. I checked them all out, picked them off the shelf. And the first one I opened up, it was about karate. I thought, here are the the magic tricks that will solve my problems. On the very first page, it said, martial arts is not magic. Martial arts requires hard work, dedication, strength, and all these other attributes that I totally lacked at the time. Discipline, for example. I was like, oh man, this sucks, this is hard. So you know, I checked out the books, I did what I could. I practiced with my brothers in our front yard, trying to spar, whatever we were doing. And my first formal martial arts class, I was 17 years old, I went to Brigham Young University. I graduated high school a little early. And at this time, Mark Schultz, who fought in the UFC at this time, uh, he was the wrestling coach at BYU. This is how I found out about MMA. So I was taking a Taekwondo class, that was being held in the wrestling room, Mark Schultz Wrestling Room. And there's this giant 600-pound grappling dummy over in the corner. Nobody can move it. The Taekwondo coach says, yeah, you better leave that that alone. That belongs to uh, the wrestling coach. By the way, don't scratch up the mats. He'll get really mad at me. He'll beat me up. And we all laughed because this guy's a sixth-degree black belt in Taekwondo from Korea where like a wrestler couldn't beat you up. You're like Bruce Lee, you can do all those kicks from the movies. He's like, "Guys, you don't understand. This guy is a real fighter, not like me. He fights in a cage with no rules, no time limits, nothing. He's he's a real fighter." And I had never seen cage fighting at the time very few people had. Very few people knew about the UFC unless they knew a guy who knew a guy who had a copy of an old VHS of a of a pay-per-view except for the very few who were actually there. And I was like, what is this cage fighting thing? What is this? I I, I want to know more. And so I would stalk the wrestling room a, a lot to try to get a glimpse of this chosen by Chael Sonnen was wrestling at BYU at that time before he transferred to Oregon. So there were a lot of, a lot of guys who ended up becoming, uh, MMA fighters, um, who, just kind of gravitated around this wrestling room. Guys like Hank Weiss, he became a, a very interesting MMA fighter. Shail Sonnen, for example. Mark Schultz was, was doing his thing. So um, that that's how I first found out about MMA. Now, I didn't start competing in MMA or training for it for years because it was just always this thought in the back of my mind. I, I thought, oh, grappling, I don't want to do that. It's weird. I just want to punch and kick. I want to be a kickboxer. I want to be a taekwondo guy. So I finished. I finished college, and I ran into some, some financial struggles. And I was working a bunch of jobs, trying to make ends meet, and I wasn't. And uh, I found out that there was a uh, there was this fight promoter in Salt Lake City, and they uh, they paid people fifty bucks to go fight, and fifty more if you could win. And I thought, okay. That's all I need is 50 extra bucks a month. I'm going to do this. So I signed up for a kickboxing match. And I did some kickboxing matches with them. I, I won some. I lost some. Then eventually I got talked into doing a, a Muay Thai fight. I had no Muay Thai experience. I did that. I was like, huh, well, that's interesting. So I kept going with that for a while. And then I got challenged on the internet to an MMA fight by this guy that I had beaten previously in a kickboxing match. He told me, you think you're such a hot shot kickboxer? Well, if... If it was an MMA fight. Actually, they called it NHB back then. Nobody said MMA. No NHB, no holds part. If we did an NHB fight, I'd totally kill you, man. And I'm a pragmatic person, so I said, okay, I beat you once, I can do it again. Let's let's do it. So I got in the cage with this guy. And fortunately, he 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 kind of sucked. He he was he didn't know what he was doing. But I didn't know that. And so I go in there. If you look at my sure dog record, it says I won by guillotine choke. That's not true. I got a front headlock on. I broke his posture, got a front headlock, and I started throwing liver shots. I landed like four of them. He crumpled to the ground. He starts tapping out. The referee doesn't see it. So I, I keep hitting him until he taps big enough for the referee to see. And I thought, well, that was incredibly easy. I didn't even know how, need to know how to grapple. But I actually ended up breaking my foot in that fight because he did pick me up and slam me at one point. But I ended up winning via strikes, not a guillotine, as Sherdog says. One of many inaccuracies on that website. But um, so I thought, I'm going to do it again. MMA is not that tough. It's not that hard. So I did a few more MMA fights until I fought this guy. uh, This guy who actually knew how to wrestle, how to wrestle well. And he took me down pretty easily, transitioned him out very easily and started dropping elbows on my face. And there was nothing I could do about it. And I realized right there and then, what I am is not enough. What I can do is not enough. I need to become a mixed martial artist. And so from that point on, like, even though I was like three MMA, it's deep into my, into my pro fighting career. Cause it, these were pro fights. There was no amateur intro, like in the state of Utah. If you fight professionally as a kickboxer or a boxer, at least back then, that was, that was the rule you and then you make a transition to MMA. It has to be professional. So there was no, no baby steps along the way, if you will. Got thrown in with the uh, with the sharks pretty early on. So, um,
0: if I can pause you for a sec,
1: sure.
0: That transition you made from Taekwondo. So you came from Taekwondo. Yes. You found Taekwondo. How old were you? Because you uh, you said you were a kid. How old were you when you found Taekwondo? 17.
1: 17 when I took my first Taekwondo
0: class. Oh, wow. So you weren't a kid. You were like, you were almost done with being a teenager. (laughs) Okay.
1: Almost done. Almost 18 years old.
0: (laughs) All right. So you were 17 when you found Taekwondo. And then following your timeline, how much longer until you found, you went from Taekwondo to kickboxing, we'll say there. When when did that happen?
1: Oh, I think my first pro kickboxing match. I was aged twenty four, and I'd never trained for the sport of kickboxing. I thought it's punches and kicks. It's it's just like taekwondo. How hard can it be? I'd never put on a set of boxing gloves before. Whoa! Never never did a fight in just you know boxing shorts without a shirt or anything like that. And I got to tell you, it felt really weird doing that. That's something nobody tells you. Is all these little incidental variables of fighting. I mean, you go to the gym, they, they teach you techniques. They don't tell you how bright the lights are. They don't tell you how hot the mat can get if it's if it's an artificial surface. They don't tell you not to get distracted by the ring girls. They don't tell you the, the sounds the crowd is going to be making. They, they don't tell you about the, the anxiety or any of these things. They just teach you fighting techniques. And then you go on the cage and it's this radically different thing than the gym where you get in a boxing ring, radically different thing than the gym. But, yeah, I'd I'd done a number of traditional martial arts. There were a bunch of martial arts clubs at my university. So I did Taekwondo. I did Shotokan Karate at the same time. I did Capoeira. All these striking arts, all these stand-up arts, basically.
0: Okay, so it wasn't – so you did have like a different – it wasn't like you were a strict Taekwondo guy, very limited contact to being punched in the face in your training and then just jumping straight into kickboxing. You had other styles. You kind of worked with different rules. You didn't just – spar like type ta- you know how taekwondo has the focus right they don't they kick yeah. to the head and focus yeah, punch you to the face, face. no
1: striking the face yeah yeah. taekwondo federation style
0: yeah 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 but you actually did uh, other styles yeah,
1: i've mean, been punched in the face but not not that much not that often not that frequently and not with the intensity so the guy i fought was an amateur boxer who decided to try kickboxing and i think he, he had some karate experience as as a child but he was an amateur boxer that was That was his thing. And I thought, amateur boxer, how tough can that be? And this guy just lit me up with his hands in a kickboxing match. And that that was revelatory too. I mean, that that really got me to to respect the art of boxing as as a martial art and something every fighter needs to do. Because if if you can't address the issues answered by boxing, you really don't belong, belong in a fight, any type of fight. And similarly, with mixed martial arts, if you can't address the issues answered by wrestling, or jujitsu or all these other basic fundamental positional styles, you really don't belong in a fight. I mean, this is stuff everybody needs to know, but it's, and it sounds, it sounds so self-evident today. Today, people growing up watching the UFC, and they're like, duh, of course you need to know how to box and wrestle and do jiu jujitsu and Muay Thai, whatever. Everyone knows that Nobody knew that back then everybody was so dogmatic it's, it's crazy how that is like 30 years previously bruce lee was preaching against dogmatism and everyone's like yeah yeah okay we get it but they didn't really they didn't really man so how did your and even today
0: how did you back then i I i understand that too like coming from a similar thing people were very like you said bruce lee was there but there was a very like a stylistic mentality of this style is the best, so you shouldn't yeah. cross-train. How did your coaches, or how did your senseis, I, I don't know what terms they use in Taekwondo, but how did your instructors handle you saying, oh, I want to do different, I want to mix it up, I want to do some Shotokan, I want to do some Kupara?
1: Were they okay with that? Um, some of them not very well, man. Some of them were not. So the here's the thing. There was like this big rift between Shotokan Karate and Taekwondo, especially the instructors. So I had this this instructor from Cambodia this dude didn't call him and this it was so serious he was the Taekwondo coach and he was like man this guy this guy lived through like the, the killing fields of Cambodia like he was so serious he was like this is not a game this is war we're like Whoa, oh, chill man chill but he was so intense and man but he, he was I had like five different Taekwondo instructors um, you know th- this guy was all about Taekwondo is, is survival self-defense it's not a game I had a, uh, a coach who was uh, I think I think she was a bronze or silver medalist. I don't remember in, in the Olympics, but she was all about the uh, the and format, like scoring points, winning uh, sparring sessions, and so on. I had this other guy Burton Sparks. This dude was uh, this dude was all about breaking stuff. Like, man, that's that was his emphasis. Like, hit really hard and smash stuff. I mean, it was he was a fun guy to train with. And you know, I I had a had a few other Taekwondo coaches as well, but man, the Shotokan coach, I'm blanking on his last name, but Sensei Paul, man, Paul, he was an older gentleman. its It's been so long since I saw him. But what was so funny is everything he taught, the forms in Taekwondo are, I'm going to offend people saying this, but they're exactly the same as Shotokan. They just rearrange them to look like the 10 grams on the Korean flag. That's all they do, but it's the exact same movement. It's the same exact syllabus of movement. Taekwondo and Shotokan are basically the same martial art. But on each side they are so dogmatic and they will tell you, no, our style is far superior to theirs. Our roundhouse kick is like this, and theirs is like this, and it's the same dang thing. So we would get a lot of preaching, like, yeah, when they found out that I was cross-training, like like um, I remember one I was at the at letter club and all these clubs run the same campus, right? And, and, uh, one day my Taekwondo coach walked by and he sees me training with the Capoeira club, club and he just gives me this, just gives me the look of death. Like how, how could you do this? You've betrayed me. And I remember, um, I remember he, uh, he was walking with some of the members of the club and he said, "Remsey's not one of us anymore. He's doing something else now. <laughs> Don't associate with him, and I was like, "What the heck, man!" And I remember, I, I went back to Taekwondo class, and he's like shunning me. He's shunning me. He's like, "You do not have what it takes to be a Taekwondo black belt. You do not." And he's like, What is your problem, man?" He's like, "You're one of them now." It was it was like you had to pick a side back then. It was it's so dumb. It's so dumb. But th- this still happens. This totally still happens. I have a good friend. I won't mention his name because he trains at multiple Brazilian jiu-jitsu schools. And if they found out about each other, he would never get promoted again, ever. Because they have this very strict policy, don't cross-train at another gym. They are not like us, it's us or them, right? It's it's stupid, but martial arts are super dogmatic. They always have been, they probably always will be to some extent.
0: So you did your cross-training, you went you got shunned <laughs> you got shunned for for not oh, yes, for, I got for for say for mixing it up um, and for those of you listening um, I know a lot of you follow the kajji podcast uh, the series I do there and I talk about how and I didn't have that much of a problem in our system we were allowed to just let our instructor know our instructor just asks to let it let them know you know I want to do some cross training
1: what do you okay. think
0: of this style or what do you think of this school have you heard anything? And they kind of give you an okay, depending on if that school is a school that is uh, doesn't have a bad reputation or anything. But otherwise than that, if everything's clear, you know, you're pretty much allowed to mix it up, which is a little different from how some styles can be. But even within Kambo, I've met some guys that are really dogmatic that you know only Kambo and you shouldn't train in anything else. You know, but um, there's not that many of them. But yeah, they they, they exist. They they do exist.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. But you started mixing it up. It's also funny as far as as far as fighting goes. Like if you're fighting professionally and they introduce you as a taekwondo fighter or a taekwondo black belt or something like that, if you win, suddenly all the Taekwondo nerds want to claim you. They're like, oh, he's one of ours. If you lose, they're like, oh, that's not Taekwondo, this guy sucks. He's not one of us. When you put a label on it, man, that's how it goes.
0: Yeah, with with Kaju Kembo, like I said, I haven't I haven't personally met many people that would get upset about mixing it up. Most of the times that they would get upset was if if a student, like as an instructor, some Kaju Kembo guys would get upset if a student decided to go somewhere, cross-train, and not say anything. That's the only time they would get upset. So if they started cross-training and felt like they had to keep that a secret from the instructor, the instructor would get upset for not just letting them know. Just let me know. That way we know that you're training somewhere else and we can figure out you know what you want to do and that kind of thing but um yeah as far as being super dogmatic they're a little more open I mean, of course like it's it's a little not it's not as old as taekwondo you know it's, it came out in the 50s so it's got a little more of a background with people that came from like professional boxing i think the the founder used to be a professional boxer so they're a little more open to it
1: um taekwondo is not that old up it started in the 1950s as well. Oh, really?
0: Huh. Okay. Well, I don't. I don't know much about the history of Taekwondo. That's, that's new to me. That's new to me. 50s, huh?
1: So, yeah, basically, some Korean martial artists got together and said, "Hey, let's let's make like an amalgam," and they came up with Taekwondo, mostly kicking. But yeah, Hmm. Uh, started in 50s fish.
0: A lot of stuff got kinda of got started, right? I think the, the history of uh the history of uh Kempo starts around the fifties as well. Like American Kempo yeah. starts around the fifties. Around the yeah, same thing.
1: Traditional so. martial arts aren't that old. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that shocks a lot of people because they think they're like ancient, go back thousands of years. Like most traditional martial arts come in the nineteenth in the nineteen hundreds. Judo
0: judo's nineteen like thirties, right? I think the 1930s was Judo, around
1: there. Well, it, it depends on when you consider uh, the founding, like if you consider the founding of the Kodokan, the beginning of Judo, or Jigoro Kano developing his own style of Kano Jiu-Jitsu as the founding of Judo, or if you consider uh, when they when they officially had all the colored belts in the system as the founding of Judo, or when it got introduced to the, to the founding of Judo. I mean, it's... They're all very different eras in in the development of judo, but yeah, Jigoro Kano was developing it. The late 1800s. Okay. It, it really became codified in the early 1900s, okay. and it didn't really become the sport that we know today until really the 1980s. Oh wow! When they changed the rules substantially and took the, away all the leg attacks. Ah, uh, that was and like for the most of the ground.
0: Uh, that was like for the Olympics, right? They're like when they kind of tried to put together the thing for the judo yeah. for the Olympics. All right, sorry, got yeah. sidetracked. We're going to get back... <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to try to reel this back into your, to your story. Um, okay. Reeling this back in, you mixed it up. Then you started doing kickboxing, but you did mix it up. You said you didn't do any formal kickboxing training before your first kickboxing match?
1: Oh, not at that point. Okay.
0: But you You went in there, you did your kickboxing match. So now you did your kickboxing match. It was a amateur match? It was a pro match? It was professional. Oh, wow. So just... It was a professional like you said, they didn't, right? they didn't, there was no divisions back then. It was, hey, either you you are in all the way or you're not doing this at all. So you stepped in as first pro, pro first fight, starting off pro as a kickboxer. You do your thing. You do the kickboxing. Yep. One of the guys you beat, if I'm following this timeline correctly, how old are you at this point? So you're 17 in Taekwondo. You start mixing it up. You do your first kickboxing match at
1: age 24 24 so 24 to the kickboxing match
0: around 24 yeah then
1: around you start doing 10. that
0: for a little bit you're doing it for money like you said 50 bucks entry you get some get some get some 50 bucks back at your hundred yeah the,
1: the biggest paycheck i ever got for kickboxing and this surprises people i think it was 350 dollars, and that was including the win bonus like kickboxing american kickboxing was extremely low paying like uh if you read Chuck Liddell's biography, like when he won the world championship, he made like 500 bucks for that. In his, uh, that's in his biography, Iceman. And I read that. It was like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean. Like the, the highest paycheck i ever got was 350 bucks for kickbox. It was not a high-paying sport. It's like one. it's something you had to love to do. Yeah. And I mean like. like if, you, if you didn't. Enjoy it. There was no point doing
0: it then. I mean, arguably now with with MMA, now that they added the amateur divisions, when you take in consideration uh, the blood work, uh, you know, the transportation to the fight, whether you win or lose, a lot of times on the amateur undercards, you're pretty much paying to fight. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Yes. <laughs> so so oh, a yeah. so hundred dollars was not bad, really. <laughs> fifty bucks to get in, and fifty bucks if you win. That's that's a, that's a good deal. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that, that's what I was making when I started out. So you got in there. Someone challenged you to an MMA fight. You beat them, as you mentioned earlier, and you decided to. After you lost to the wrestler, you decided that hey this grappling thing, I need to figure it out. And you started doing more yeah, MMA training, more wrestling training. Yeah. What,
1: what was your transition from there? At that point, I got introduced to one of my dearest, best friends in the whole world and uh, one of the best coaches I ever met, this guy named Shane Brenner. So he was a professional fighter and he, uh, he sent me an email. He said, hey, man, I, I've seen you struggling out there and I want to help you. And I'd seen this guy fight, and he was just, he was a monster. He seemed like a killer in in the cage. I was like, man, is, is this guy going to beat me up? He's like, come to my home gym. I've got a gym in my so I, come-. I was like, is he going to, like, murder me in his basement? I don't know, because he, he was just a scary-looking guy. So I go over to his house, and he meets me at the door. He's like, hey, come in and I made lunch. Check this out, man. And he's got, like, this, uh, this, like, homemade craft Salad type of thing that he's made. I'm like, you're feeding me. I was, This is not what I was expecting. So we eat, we go down to the basement, and he's like, he's like, I know what you need. You need some experience, and and he just took me under his wing and took so much time out of his out of his life out of his busy schedule to to fill in all the holes in my game. And and uh, man, I can't be more grateful to to Shane Brenner. Man, big shout out to Shane. Um, just invested hundreds of hours of training into me, but one of the most important things that he, he drilled in my head was the concept of learning how to learn, which is something every fighter needs to know. I know it sounds hokey. It sounds like something, uh, a high school coach would shout at the team before they go out there, guys, you got to learn how to learn, how to learn. But it's true. You got to learn how to learn because it's one thing being shown a technique. It's another thing being able to assimilate the technique and add it to your game. It's another thing entirely to be able to learn of your own to learn on your own, to learn of your own free will and volition without having to be to be led to the water, if you will. Um so man, this this was game changing for me. This is this is what got me interested in in coaching. Because I realized, man, if somebody as worthless at grappling as I was could learn how to grapple because this guy was able to teach me the way then I realized man anybody any able-bodied person has that capacity to learn and I thought man I want to do that I want to do for other people what he did for me so um, sometime later I I ended up um, opening up my own gym it was a small one I invited people to train for free at first. I was just like, man, I just need the experience. So I invited people to train for free. I ended up coaching a bunch of fighters who went out there, fought professionally, won a bunch of fights. And it it was, it was so interesting. I started seeing patterns. I started seeing patterns when I watched fights because I I watched every single fight I, I could. I watched every UFC fight that I could afford. To get got the pay-per-view. I watched every amateur fight. I watched every. They used to have this, uh, this uh, like pro fight show, local one. They would show at 3 a.m. in the morning. You had to stay up and watch it on the cable access. I'd watch every episode of that and just digest it. I'd record them with VHS tapes and play them back in slow motion, try to pick them apart frame by frame to figure out like how do you beat this guy? How do you solve this problem? what's this half guard thing all about, you know, back when nobody knew what half guard was. And man, it was, it was incredibly educational. I was, I was having this conversation yesterday with some of my students because they're taking out their cell phones and filming the sparring, which is something I heavily encouraged them to do. And I was telling them, believe it or not, there was a time where you couldn't do this. People didn't have portable high definition cameras in their pockets at all times. You had to you had to just go to some crazy lengths to get some visual feedback on, on your fighting. So, anyway, I went off on a tangent there, but... No, um, no,
0: no. No, no, no that's, that's good. That's that's a good tangent. That's a good tangent to go on. Going into your timeline, obviously those those experiences really influence on how you coach now. And one of the questions I ask all my Guests that uh that are also instructors is that transition from fighting, training, and teaching, right? You started off; you were being bullied. A lot of people, a lot of martial artists, and for those of you listening to it that are martial artists and listen to my show for the few psychology episodes that I stopped doing a while ago, um, <laughs> a lot of martial artists have a very similar story here, where we always start off with some experience that made us want to start training. A lot of it, <laughs> usually bullying. Um, Get into it, get better, get into this weird transition where, hey, it's no longer really about me being able to defend myself. I'm confident that I can defend myself. But then it's about being confident and defending yourself against someone who is also skilled. And that kind of starts setting you off in a total different path. And then you start getting better at that. And then at one point you start thinking, wow, I know all these things. I want to teach other people. I want to show other people what I learned. When, how? So obviously, um, what was the coach's name that you just mentioned? The
1: Shane Shane Brenner.
0: Yeah, Shane Brenner influenced you in a way that you said, "I really want to teach." Like this is this is, this is something that I, I really want to teach people what I what he taught me how to do. I want to do for others. How old were you when this happened?
1: Oh, I was in my mid twenties. Between my mid twenties to about age thirty, that's when I first moved to. That's when I moved to China at age thirty. So, I think I met Shane. I was probably about twenty six. We trained together for about four years, and yeah, parted ways when I moved to China. That was that was one of the uh, that was one of the hardest things to leave behind because you know I, I sold everything that I owned, got rid of my gym, did all this stuff to in order to move to China. You know, just dropped the world behind. The hardest part was leaving. Leaving my coaches and training partners and students and the fighters I trained with, and all these, all these guys, because um, stuff and things you, you can buy that again. Like you, you can't, you can't bring the people with you. On the other hand, but yeah.
0: And in that moment, so you you were still fighting. Uh, you were you were uh, you were now in your MMA career. You know, you you now transitioned. Out of kickboxing into MMA, you're fighting professionally because back then there was no divisions like we talked about. You're fighting professionally as an MMA fighter, and you built your gym. Um, And where was this again? Where did you build your gym?
1: The first one, it was in the city of Murray, Utah. It's a suburb of Salt Lake City. All right. Basically, so that was my first gym.
0: So you built your gym. While you're fighting, you have your gym. Like you said, you were offering free lessons because you just wanted to get people in the door and start training um and and then somewhere along on this path you're teaching and you already mentioned you already answered you kind of already answered my question earlier when you said how that influenced you to want to teach when you were training with your other coach now you have some students you're teaching them what i'm
1: going to cut you off really quick about this before teaching because i I taught martial arts okay i'd spent years teaching taekwondo for example And teaching Taekwondo, teaching a traditional martial art, and here's what separates traditional martial arts from from, uh, combat sports, in my opinion, is that when you teach a traditional martial art, you are teaching a tradition. You are teaching, you have to move in this exact way or it's not Taekwondo. If you do something different, it's no longer Taekwondo. And, And that's something you can teach. Put your hands and feet here, basically. Coaching, though, that, that's a different thing. Coaching is facilitating the process of winning fights, as far as combat sports goes. So, as far as Taekwondo teaching Taekwondo, this is teaching somebody how to throw a roundhouse kick, how to throw a side kick, how to throw an axe kick, how to do the forms. Right? That's a radically different process than facilitating winning fights. So, there are Taekwondo teachers who teach how to do the movements. There are Taekwondo coaches who teach you how to win Taekwondo competitions. I was a teacher before. I made the transition to becoming a coach, and that's a radically different thing. So, coaching cage fighters versus teaching technique—I mean, coaches can teach technique; Uh, often they do. I mean, I do. I teach technique classes every day, but coaching transcends that. I believe it's a different thing. It's a different skill set,
0: and. So kind of going off of that, would you say, would you say going from Taekwondo, I guess, to answer, to ask you the question that I ask everyone, when, when did you know, before, now we're gonna go back in your story, in your timeline, when did you know that you wanted to teach martial arts, whether it was traditional or not traditional? When, when did you finally say, I'm not just a student, I want to teach. That's something I want to do. Or was that forced upon you? Because I know some schools are just like, like it or not. Hey, you're teaching now. But how did that? How did that work out? You know, I
1: think, I think the first time I really wanted to teach martial arts was when I started having fundamental disagreements with some of my old martial arts instructors. Because I remember I I was sparring with one of my one of my coaches, um, and you know, this this Taekwondo black belt, and and we were sparring. And he says, we're going to spar not just taekwondo sparring. We any you can do anything. You can grapple, you can do judo, you can wrestle, you can do whatever you want. And I thought, okay. So we are grappling and I punch him in the face. And this does not go over well. <laughs> it does not go over well at all. all Suddenly it's like it's like, no, that's not the way, because you did and there were all these excuses coming in. It's like this is bad teaching. I would be a better teacher than this guy. He has a higher rank. He has the respect of the class, but he doesn't know what he's doing. As far as teaching, he's not teaching me to win fights. He's not teaching me to accomplish my goal. He's teaching me to respect a hierarchy. And that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter at all at the end of the day.
0: So let me get this straight. So he that's said, what I was getting at. Him. He said you could do anything you want. But then when you punched him in the face, he he was upset. Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh,
0: Well, to contrast that, I I got asked by one of my students the other day why. He said, he he told me Joe Rogan, and this is going to be very, we're going to go on a little sidestep here, but he told me Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan is a fighter or was a retired fighter. And I kind of cringed a little bit because I have a lot of respect for Joe Rogan, and he. But even he talks about on yeah. his show how he did Taekwondo, and he did some kickboxing. Yeah. But one of the things that turned I him he also off
1: he did two kickboxing matches. He did
0: two kickboxing matches, and he talked about how, as far as I know, turned him off to kickboxing was getting punched in the face. That was one of the things that really discouraged him from wanting to do kickboxing because yeah. of the Taekwondo background. He opens that up, and that's what he got out of it. That was one of the things I kind of set him down the way. And I told him, like, because he, he, I was telling him, Taekwondo is a traditional martial art, but a lot of the guys, and I don't know how it was from the area you're in, but in Southern California, a lot of the Taekwondo guys infamously would get very upset if you punched them in the face. Even if you were standing in your case, you were on the ground when you did it. But, like, if we were standing, they would be equally as upset because they really don't, even if they open it up, Because, like, (laughs) the Kajukenbo studio was shared with a Taekwondo school. And my instructor warned us, when you train with the Taekwondo guys, be careful with the contact. And just be careful all around because they are a different style and they have different approaches to their things. Respect the instructors when you're there. But be careful and don't talk back to anyone if you're a colored belt. Don't be getting into arguments with anyone. But that was one of the things that really was, like, really... Distinctual between Kaju and Taekwondo is the Taekwondo guys really did get upset if you punched them in the face And we try to avoid doing that when we visit their class yes.
1: oh, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, basically one or two reactions when you punch <laughs> a guy in the face who isn't accustomed to it who doesn't train for that either They will Kind of run away and get really timid or they'll get super aggressive and super angry and you'll see there They just get this animal look in their eyes and then they try to hurt you back, and they try to hurt you worse.
0: Yeah, and you know nothing against Taekwondo. I'm just like I, I've said this before on the show. Nothing against Taekwondo. It's just the differences that you'll find when you're looking at a more of a traditional martial art that has a certain set of rules that they follow, and more of a non-traditional martial art that mixes different stuff, different sets of rules. So you decided at that point that you wanted to teach. That was that was your that was your inspiration <laughs> at that point. You wanted to teach. Yeah, I suppose you could say that. And that kind of turned into this new thing where you uh, you started teaching. At that point, when you made that decision, you decided that you were going to start teaching a different approach to Taekwondo, or did you say you wanted to start teaching MMA, or what? What was that first click for you?
1: And that's that's a good question because I I, I didn't want to teach the same thing i didn't want to teach like this respect for the hierarchy above all uh, above all else i didn't want to teach something ineffective like oh you can't punch people in the face and the floor is lava and all these other (laughs) silly rules that don't exist in in the real world but at the same time i I didn't want to be one of those goofy guys who makes up their own martial art (laughs) and gives it a funny sounding asian name to try to sound more authentic and and then people are like, uh, so you made up your own martial art. Now you're the grandmaster. I'm like, no, I, I didn't want to have that experience because I'd seen that go down badly many, many times. Or I'd seen people take a martial art like Taekwondo, quote the word combat in front of it. Combat Taekwondo. This isn't that sissy Taekwondo. This is the real stuff. <laughs> or what else? Combat Aikido, combat anything. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous how many, how many um, craptacular tacular martial artists stick the word combat in front of a martial art that kind of sucks in order to try to legitimize it and i didn't want to go down that route so i i didn't really know what to do at the time because i didn't know what mma was and i thought well well, should i make up my own style should i just say uh, i'm teaching fighting because that's not very marketable um so mma really made made that easy to essentially sell the art of fighting. Because, you know, that's what it is. It's it's the act of fighting, right? And I didn't want to teach self-defense. And this this shocks a lot of people because they they tend to associate martial arts as self-defense. Self-defense is a legal term. Self-defense is justifying to a court of law your violent actions, which otherwise would have been illegal. And self-defense, like real self-defense, if you're worried about multiple opponents who are bigger and stronger than you attacking you with weapons. Your fleshy little fists don't do very much against that. So real self-defense is be the guy with more friends with you and more and better weapons with you and be bigger and stronger than the other guys. And yeah. And and hire a lawyer so you know how to justify that in a court of law. I mean, that, that's real self-defense. You, you don't get that by learning how to throw the perfect punch in most situations. So I didn't want to go down the self-defense route. I was like, you know, I, I love martial arts. I love, the, uh, I love the, the, the act of gaining physical mastery over the human body in the context of hand-to-hand combat. Like that's, that's something that just really resonates with me greatly. Ritual combat. All animals, not all animals, but a lot of animals participate in one-on-one, single combat, ritual combat without the intention to kill each other, like lizards do this, all types of lizards do this, frogs do it, Um, sheep do it, goats do it, bighorn sheep do it, kangaroos do it. So many different animals do it. They engage in ritual combat with each other. And sometimes it's over territory, sometimes it's over mating rights, sometimes it's, it's play fighting to teach themselves survival skills. And sometimes they just do it for no discernible reason, but almost... Almost all animals with a backbone and arms and legs and a mouth engage in ritual combat. So it should come as no surprise that do this too. We build, we build up a lot of pageantry around it sometimes with cage fights and, and spectacles and, and bring girls and all this stuff. Through, but um, it's the same thing. And, and that's something I wanted to participate in. That's something I wanted to, to do. But coming up with a name or a brand for that before MMA was a thing was incredibly dicey territory. Like if you look at Berg Jack, he originally called his style Gaido Jutsu, which is some bastardized Japanese version of what (laughs) he believed meant uh, the, the art of the street or something like that. But he wanted to give it an Asian sounding name to make it sound more legit back in the era where everybody wanted to do a, an Asian martial art, and if it didn't have a, if it didn't have Japanese characters behind it or Chinese characters on it, it, it wasn't cool, right? And you look back at that now, it sounds so cheesy. Gaido Jutsu, what's that all about? But again, Greg Jackson, one of the premier mixed martial arts coaches out there. So, yeah, back in the day before MMA, what what would you call mixed martial arts training back then?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what, arguably, that's what the guys in our kaju-kembo system try to do, right? That's why they came up with a Japanese-sounding name, kaju-kembo, to try to mix the karate, yeah. the judo, the jiu-jitsu, the danryu jiu-jitsu, and the Kempo with the kung fu techniques, and then the bow for boxing. But um, at the end of the day, when I say this to a Japanese person, they almost think it sounds Japanese, because it's got the kaju-kembo, you can say it in their language, but they always look at you and start scratching their head like... Whoa. It sounds like you said something in Japanese, but you didn't. So yeah, like I, I totally understand this idea of like you know back then because there was no MMA, they had to come up with different stuff, and it usually ended up sounding cheesy. I think um what's the guy uh Benny the Jet Rodriguez? He also came up with a I yeah. forgot the the name. He has another, and he is he's another like really like prominent figure in the mma community from doing kickboxing back in the day but even he had the same problem because he didn't come from a kickboxing was not really kickboxing either and he i forgot what it is if you look on facebook he has some really strange sounding name for his martial art which is essentially just more mma and kickboxing but again like it yeah does get into dicey territory trying to name something or adding extreme to it i've seen extreme something or other in front of it to try to get it out there so but you did Extreme Wing chun. Yeah. <laughs> so you you decided to do it though and you started um you what did you end up calling it? I guess did you call it anything or did you just what did you do? How did you sol-
1: how did you solve that? No, I didn't call it anything. I I I taught taekwondo for a while and th- there was a point I I ended up getting a job at this uh this um this gym they were looking for a karate instructor and i was like well my belt's in taekwondo but i need a job and they probably don't care in fact um you know the first the first prominent taekwondo instructor in the in the united states changed the name to karate because people had heard the name karate blanking on the guy's name but he opened up a chain of schools in texas which um is now the most prominent uh lineage of karate in the united states and it's not even It's Taekwondo, but by a different name. So I went and taught this karate class for a while and uh, I'd done karate before. So I just put on my karate gi and put on my black belt and and nobody cared. Nobody cared. Maybe that's a fraudulent thing to do. I don't know, but nobody cared. Um, (laughs) They wanted to learn how to punch and how to kick. They wanted to learn how to do all the cool moves. They wanted to put on a uniform, do some Japanese cosplay, and feel good about themselves, and get a workout, and work out, work up a sweat. Later on, however, um, after I moved to China, I I wrote a vlog, not not a vlog, a blog. Yes, that's that's the written tag. I wrote a blog about uh, Krav Maga and some really negative experiences I've had with Krav Maga, and just dozens and dozens of Krav Maga instructors I've met who just absolutely sucked at. At Krav Maga, they sucked at fighting. They sucked at self-defense. They couldn't fight their way out of a wet paper bag. I wrote, I wrote a vlog about this. Got some very negative reviews from Krav Maga practitioners. But because of this, when you searched for Shanghai, China, and Krav Maga on Google, the first website to come up was mine. And so I got contacted emails, like dozens of emails, from women who wanted to learn Krav Maga for self-defense. I said, "Can you teach me Krav Maga for self-defense?" And I was so tempted to say, yes, because I could make more money that way and just, you know, teach them how to fight for real. But I thought, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell them, uh, no. And I I fought the temptation to tell them Krav Maga sucks because, you know, whatever, let them live their fantasy. How many people are actually going to end up getting in a fight anyway? A few a few. Maybe it's a big disservice, but um yeah, that's uh that's my story about about la- branding martial arts is so weird, giving them labels and names. I mean, I know in a way we have to because everything has to have a name, that's how languages work. But when you start um pigeonholing the art of fighting into these little niches with little labels, it gets weird. Because when a fight happens. Like, a real fight happens, the referee doesn't come and pull you apart and say, hey, no no clinching, no hitting below the belt, no this, no that. It it just happens. It happens organically, and you go through all these different ranges of combat. For example, if you watch a street fight with two guys who don't know anything, what happens? They shout angry words. Maybe they push. They start throwing haymakers. After the first punch connects, they follow an instinct to grab the other guy and squeeze him, and they get into a goofy schoolyard bully headlock or something like that. They tumble on the ground. Maybe they, they slug each other on the ground a few times, their friends come and pull them apart, and that's it. They give them a face-saving exit. And in that stupid little street fight, we see all the major ranges of combat. We see the stand-up phase outside the pocket, we see a striking phase, we see a clinching phase, we see a takedown, we see a ground-fighting phase. And it's, it's bad, it's not technical, but it's all the major ranges of combat that a fight can happen in. And if you look at an MMA fight, you see the same thing, just more sophisticated, but it's the same thing. But then if you look at almost any other martial art with extremely restrictive rules, like the floor is lava, so we can't go there. <laughs> um, you can't do this, you can't grab this, you can't do that. Suddenly we create uh, we create these um, I don't know, silly artificial limitations and it's good to give yourself limitations in training because when we give ourselves limitations we come up with questions when we have questions we come up with answers but to give yourself limitations when it comes to fight time is weird man it's weird it
0: creates a strange space where you have people who become very successful at one niche and then they believe that they actually know how to fight And maybe in some cases they do. Um, In a lot of cases, they they don't. And I and I think that's where anybody who's really fought, either anybody who's either fought either because they were in the military and they were in a real combat situation, or they ended up in a bad neighborhood like I did, or in your case, someone who stepped into the cage. Anybody who's really fought will look at that and immediately see. Wait a second. This person says they're a. I'm not even going to pick on a martial art here. This person says they're a dot, dot, dot champion of this. But then when they see the practice, anybody who's been in any real fight will look at it and be like, well, this isn't this isn't real fighting. Anybody who's been in a real fight will look at it right away and this this weird itch in the back of their head will be like, this isn't real fighting. And then I mean, it's up to the person from there to discern what they can take from that. I always like to use the analogy of tools. When you look at styles that are really stylistic, they're like tools. Point sparring is a tool. You can yeah. learn things about distance and timing and how to be explosive from point sparring does it teach you how to fight it's a tool but if you only use point sparring then you're completely neglecting brazilian jiu-jitsu but if you only do brazilian Uh jiu-jitsu you still might not know how to fight because now you're completely neglecting how to strike so like again not picking on any one style they're all tools but kind of going into what you're saying as far as you know the marketing Branding is really difficult when you start saying, hey, I want to teach people how to do cage fighting. And then cage fighting, right? If you have your average person on the street who knows what cage fighting is, or your average soccer mom, <laughs> where you tell them, hey, let's teach you some cage fighting, it can, it can kind of turn them off to the idea of wanting to train. <laughs> yeah.
1: Because <laughs> they, they want a, a brand that they can trust. I mean, they, they've heard all these other soccer moms say, we go to this Krav Makito school over here. I just made up a martial art right <laughs> there. Um, and Karen down the street you know she really likes it and says it's a great workout and so they, they trust it they trust that name they learn to trust whatever label is thrown at them and then they hear um, some guy on the internet like me say yeah Krav Markito sucks you should learn how to fight for real instead go go do some MMA what's MMA it's cage fighting ah. right. yeah that's it's too rough that's yeah, too Karen rude. down the street isn't gonna like that very much. well
0: Karen doesn't like a lot of things and she's always yeah. calling the manager so we can't always <laughs>
1: Just kidding.
0: If your name is and Karen, me, we know we're not picking. Not- it could have it Wonder- been Sarah or anybody else. Sorry, Karen, if for any Karen's listening.
1: One of, my, one of my students in recent memory was named Karen. <laughs> so, in a great <laughs> twist of irony.
0: So, you what brought you, I, I'm running out of time here, but I do want to figure yeah. out. Uh, what brought you to China what what got you there you said it was a, it was a difficult decision for you you wanted to stay because you already have stu- you had students in a gym but what what brought you to China?
1: yeah um, hmm man there's there's really no big story there I mean my, my wife wanted to do something different with her life. She was really unhappy with her job and we had a lot of talks about well man what what, what can we do different? And, we just had this idea, like, what if we go to Asia, let's go to China. Yeah. I've seen some Chinese movies. It looks interesting. Let's go get that a try. So she had, uh, she was teaching driver's education at the time and she had a student from Shanghai and he, he worked for the Shanghai normal university, Shanghai, Dashui, and, um, he said, "Hey, I'll hook you up with some jobs at the university." We we're like, "You can do that." He was like, "Yeah, of course I can." So he got us some jobs over at Shanghai Normal University. I ended up teaching in the Department of International Tourism, which is a weird story because I originally got hired on as a Spanish teacher because that's I got a Spanish degree, and I got there and they're like, uh, "Teach the international tourism students." I was like, "I, I don't have a degree in that." They were like, "It's okay. Just tell them, a, tell them about American culture." So I ended up teaching this American culture class. It's like a social studies class all about the culture of the United States, because they're training to be tour guides to Chinese-speaking people in America or people who are traveling to America. Um, so that was that was an interesting experience. So at the same time I was doing that, I ended up opening the first MMA gym in Shanghai, the second publicly available one in China. I mean, there there were some. Some teams, like the China top team was at the Xi'an Sports University. That was not open to the public. There were a few others. Uh, I think Al Haidin, he was uh, one of the OG Chinese MMA fighters. He had a gym going on in, in uh, outside of Beijing. But um, yeah, you know, the second MMA gym in China, second one open to the public, first one in Shanghai, and that might sound like a big deal, but nobody knew what it was. Again, it was the branding thing. Cause when people don't recognize your brand, they don't know why they need to buy it. And so explaining what MMA was to people and why they should come to my gym was like pulling teeth. Like Chinese people are like, so it's like boxing. I'm like, well, yes, but no. Like, well, if boxing is, exists. Why do we need that too? Like, well, it's more than boxing. So it's like Sunda. Well, yes, but no, there's more like, what's the difference? Well, in this one you are little gloves and like, why does that matter? And you can fight on the ground. Why does that matter? Why do I want to do that? Ew, gross. Oh, okay. Uh, so you didn't
0: get the gross. When you when you explained the grappling, when you explained the grappling, people were put off by the grappling.
1: Oh yes, very much so. Very much. So. No nobody nobody cared about this stuff. So like anyone trying to teach jujitsu, like um, for example, Shanghai BJJ, one of the, the oldest uh, Shanghai um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu schools in China had a very hard time. They've come a very long way since then. So when the UFC Shanghai event happened, and I went and watched that, and I saw people cheering when the fighters were doing highly technical things, I realized these aren't casual fans. These are hardcore fans who train. These are people who train, who are coming from from all across the country to watch this event because there are not this many people in Shanghai who train. And that, that was super interesting because I'd never seen an MMA event like that, not just filled with casual fans who like watching the sport, but it was filled with with people who train in jiu-jitsu, like everyone who trained in jiu-jitsu in the whole country had come. People who train in MMA, people who train in all these different combat sports gathered. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, ha- have you ever been at a live MMA event where people weren't just saying stupid things like, punch him in the face! If <laughs> I was in there, I'd kick him in the head! And instead, when somebody's going through the the intricate steps of of you know advancing position from their half guard people are cheering each step along the way and man it was it was kind of mind-blowing i was like whoa it has come such a long way in the last decade this is nuts but when you can fill out when you can fill arenas with not just the hardcore fans, but the casuals as well. Man, that's the next step along the way. Yeah,
0: I think even in...
1: So I imagine probably another even in, 10 years before we get I there. I think
0: even in Japan, I feel the same, a very similar thing is happening. Um, even though MMA has yeah. been out here for so long, once Pride disappeared from Japan, that's all... Anybody who maybe might, maybe casually know of it, they'll mention Pride. And now, because of the UFC, once yeah. in a while, the casual person will mention the UFC. But still, for the most part, it's still a very martial arts-based fan base um, of people. Yeah. And when I watch, like, I, on my Facebook feed, I'm friends now with a lot of pro MMA fighters out here, and they'll share their stuff. And I'm looking at the looking at the fights. And I'm like, oh, I know that ref. That guy owns that gym. And oh, that person in the crowd there. That guy in the background. He owns that gym. So I can now I can actually recognize their faces and that very similar thing where it's kind of being followed by the people participating in it, but kind of coming back and to wrap up your, your journey here, you're in China. You opened uh, one of the first second, first second public MMA gyms. First second, second,
1: second one in the country, first one in Shanghai. First
0: one in Shanghai. And now you're coaching. Um, how, What was that transition like? Because obviously, you not, not, wait, 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 let me rephrase this. At one point, you retired from MMA and then started fighting, then started focusing more on coaching. When did that transition happen and how did you work through that? Because I know a lot of fighters have a really difficult transition when they can't fight anymore. How did that work
1: out for you? well I was I was coaching and I was fighting at the same time but in 2011 I had my my last professional fight I fought Wong Guan, a Chinese fighter later went on to fight in the UFC um you know tough guy but he he broke my skull and so I had this this massive injury like um I don't know if you can see the light but uh I've got this hole in my head right there depressed skull fracture and I had a all the way up the cranium left me with a blind spot in one eye and every doctor I talked to was very adamant about hang up the gloves you should never fight again this is extremely dangerous and I didn't like that answer I got a second opinion I got a third opinion I got a fourth opinion and so on and every everyone told me the same thing until the last doctor he told me something a little bit different he said look I'm gonna level with you fighting was dangerous before now it's going to be more dangerous. I won't tell you no, but that's that's the situation. And it wasn't until I, I read Dave Grossman's book on killing where I realized what was going on there. It's a great book on killing by Dave Grossman, um, where he talks about combat addiction. And he tells a story about guys who went um, went to war and they went through these tours of duty. Basically went through hell, but then they requested to do it again and again. It's something no sane person would do. And when I read that, I was, whoa, that's, that's to a lesser extent what fighters are doing all the time. Because fighting kind of sucks. Like, uh, very few people are honest about that. George St. Pierre is very honest about that. He'll tell you, I hated fighting. And that confuses people because he was so good at it but nobody likes the pre-fight anxiety nobody loves that people love winning they love landing punches they love executing their game plan they love the adrenaline rush they don't love the negative anxiety they don't love the damage they don't love the pain they don't love the dire consequences of fighting
0: driving home with a micro fractured you know, all- <laughs> driving home with a micro fractured rib after yes. a fight because your wife didn't drive you to the fight. You got to go home and your shins busted and you're trying to figure out how to hit
1: the brake and gas pedal. No one likes that part. <laughs> exactly. Nobody loves that, man. Nobody loves that. So yeah, man, it's, it's so interesting that St. That Pierre was one of the guys who was so honest about that. And so, so prolific about that. He got challenged recently by, uh, I forget who was some dude, in the current UFC roster and George just turned him down and said, uh, no, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm fortunate because most guys don't get out of the sport when, when they should. And um, yeah, he's like, I'm, I'm done. I, I did what I sent out, and that's 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 a rare thing. It's a rare thing. As, as far as most fighters, like me, for example, I got injured, got cut down before I was ready, you know. And I wanted to get back in there and do it again. Uh, a number of years later, um, Evangelista Cyborg Santos had the same injury as me. It was the third time it happened professionally in in in, uh, in mixed martial arts. Second time happened to a guy in South Africa, but Cyborg, he got that big hole in his head when he fought Michael Venom Page, and he did that cool flying knee. And the first thing, <clears throat> the first thing Cyborg posted on social media was, "I'm going to make a comeback. I'm going to do it again." And then he posts pictures of the reconstructive surgery and all the bolts and stuff in his head. And he said, "He said I'm going to do it again. I'm going to fight again. I'm looking at this like no, he's not." He does not know what he's in for yet. He's not going to be able to fight again. But, you know, he wants to because it's it's combat addiction. It's what fighters do. Fighters show up to fight. Like you got that warrior mentality. You got this, This I'll, I'll fight no matter what. If I have to cut a dangerous, deadly amount of weight to fight, I'll do it. If I have to fight a guy who's better than me who will kill me instantly, I'll do it. I don't care. Just let me in that cage. It's, it's an addiction. It's a real thing. So I went through withdrawals. I went through withdrawals for a long time. And when I would watch UFC fights, I'd find myself like twitching, like trying to move through positions the way I would move when I see the other guy in a, in a bad spot be like, ah, ah, ah. You know, and I'm like, man, what am I doing? It reminded me so much of the time I got addicted to morphine. And let me tell you this story. When I was 21, I ended up hospitalized for the better part of a year. So I was hooked up to a morphine drip. And I had this pump, this this switch. Every time I pushed it, it would give me a shot of morphine. So I get out of the hospital. I'm no longer hooked up to the morphine drip. And I'm I'm sitting on the couch. I'm in college. My roommates are saying, Ramsey, what are you doing? I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, what are you doing with your hand? I'm like, I'm not doing anything with my hand. Meanwhile, my hand is going like this reaching for the button to get my hit. And I'm like, I look over my hand. I'm not, it's moving automatically. It is, it is. I'm not doing this on purpose. It's just happening. I'm like, guys, I, I think I'm addicted to morphine. And they're like, what? <laughs> anyway, so you go through things like that. Your body starts moving like outside of your conscious control. And you just start craving, you know, the positive aspects of fighting, not the negative ones. Obviously, you start looking at it through rose colored glasses. And it took a while before I could start separating that and start seeing the world or seeing the world of fighting the way George St. Pierre talks about it, like, I hate fighting. And I realize, yeah, yeah, when well, you can see it that way and separate, you know, the glory from the, from the, uh, the garbage, if you will, it, um, yeah. And screw your head on straight, like a normal person, if you will, it gets really interesting. I think you you can become a much more grounded coach. And you can help people in a much more grounded way. So I, I see some guys, and there, there are some great coaches out there who fight at the same time, but some of them, and I've seen some of them who um, are great fighters and bad coaches, and they will try to push fighters into situations they should not push their fighters. And so I think, in a lot of ways, I have a lot more empathy now for fighters and the... Uh, the um, potential damage that they can go through um man there was a a coach this is a terrible story his fighter ends up with with this massive swelling over the eye and and the coach just keeps trying to push him to go in there and basically takes takes a spoon and to dig the eye open again so he can see so the ref will let him go out there and fight again guy ends up blinded for life and this is this is an extreme story um you know, a precautionary tale for everybody, you know, just like rule number one of fighting is protect yourself at all times. Rule number one for the coach should be very, very similar. Protect your fighters at all times. Make sure they are constantly in a position where they can protect themselves. And you can't go in the cage and do it for them, but you have to do everything in your power to make sure that they are able to do that, protect themselves at all times. So man, empathy and coaching, that goes a long way, I think.
0: So, that was how you transitioned into only coaching, only teaching. And I guess for my, my last question so, you know, you know, you focus more on teaching, you're in Shanghai, China. I'll have actually I have two more questions, but this is the last question pertaining to your journey. Sure. This is a question I ask all my guests, all, all, all the coaches, all the instructors. What's the advice you have? For anyone listening uh, on the internet, for anyone watching this on YouTube, what's the advice you have for anyone who's interested in training in martial arts and they're just not sure where to start? What's your advice for them?
1: Just start somewhere. Start somewhere. I get questions. I get this question every day on YouTube. My YouTube fans send me this question in some iteration or other. Usually they'll give me their resume of every street fight they've ever had and they'll be like, um, how do I pick the absolute best martial art possible? Cause I don't want to go to a McDojo. That's, that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of, you know, people making fun of them and, and doing something goofy and believing in it, falling prey to a martial arts cult, basically. And I'll tell them, don't be afraid to make every mistake because you need to start with the goofiest thing ever. I don't care. Start with Krav Makito, <laughs> right? I don't care, right? Just start. Because once you start, you're going you're going to start seeing what you couldn't see before. Right? We we can only see what we have the context of the context of experience to see. I mean, I'll often teach a technique, you probably had this experience too, and then people will look at you and say, Well, I've never seen that move in a fight, even though it may be a fairly common technique in a fight, because they didn't know what to look for before, right? A lot of people, they'll, like, spider guard. No gi spider guard. A lot of people don't even know that's a thing because they're used to holding on to the the sleeves with the gi on there, and that's the only thing they can see is spider guard. Whereas if you're in an MMA fight, you go from close guard, push up the body with your feet, to uh, a spider guard where you have your feet on the hips and you're controlling the arms. You're only there for, like, that long, and then you transition to butterfly or get up or something like that. But people don't see it until they recognize the technique, right? So, and where was I going with that? I was trying to make an important point. Um, people that does, hold does on, it, I'm does This it, is one of does the Doesn't matter so. where you start; just start. Yes, just start. Just start because the experience, even a bad experience, will give you context of experience so that you can see where you need to go from there. So if you go to the crappy Krav Makito McDojo, okay, and you have a bad experience, then you know what to look for in your next school. You know, you know what the red flags are from firsthand experience. Like people want me to give them everything on a silver platter and, and I can do you in some general directions, right? You know, anybody with the context of experience can point you in some good general directions, like I can say, go take a Brazilian jiu-jitsu class. Go learn how to wrestle. Go take a boxing class. Go take a kickboxing class. Go join an MMA gym. A lot of people get mad at that, though, because they, they're they like, well, I love traditional martial arts and Bruce Lee, and so so that runs contr- contrary to my paradigm. But those are good general cues. Go take a combat sport because those are real, and people spar, and they get instant feedback on what they're doing. And so that can give you some good general ideas of where to go. Right? try everything but rule number one do something do something rule number two do something that you enjoy because if you don't enjoy it you won't keep doing it like i got a question recently from this guy who said i know that i should be doing brazilian jiu-jitsu but i really hate it i've been doing it for years and i really really hate it and it makes me unhappy and depressed and i go home unable to sleep because it sucks so much i'm like well Try something else. And he's like, but, but, but I feel like I'm supposed to do what makes you happy, man. Um, so not everybody needs to be a cage fighter. Not everybody needs to do jujitsu. Not everybody needs to do boxing. Everybody needs to train, I think, in some way or another, but not everybody needs to follow the same mold, you know? Now, if you have a very specific goal, if your goal is to be UFC champion of the world, you have to train in ways that facilitate that process. If your goal is to be an Aikido instructor, you have to learn Aikido. You have to learn the traditions, right? But if your goal is just do anything, then just do anything, right? So the third thing, after do something. Do something you enjoy, otherwise you won't continue doing it in the long run. Do something effective, right? And you learn what's effective through the context of experience. So there is my advice for people who ask that question. Step number one, just go somewhere, do something, anything. If you don't even have a martial arts school in your town, do what I did, go to the library, check out a book, look at a YouTube video, get some friends together in your front yard, try it out.
0: All right, well there it is folks on youtube and then for those of you listening do something now my last i guess the last not really a question i guess it is kind of a question where can people find you um i'm sure i know of you i'm guessing a lot of my listeners and viewers all you know not, as, not that many but they know they may or may not know of you uh where can they find you and uh i guess this is a two-part question where can they find you online And if people want to train with you, where can they find you to train?
1: Okay. Um, Most prominently online, you can find my YouTube channel. It's Ramsey Dewey. It's my name, the Ramsey Dewey channel. So just Google my name. You'll find an endless stream of videos from me on YouTube. You can find me on Instagram. I think my Instagram handle is also Ramsey Dewey. It may be one word or not. I'm not sure, but there are not a lot of... I don't think there are any fake Ramsey Dewey accounts on Instagram. I think I'm on Twitter. I never I, I don't know how to use Twitter, but I think I'm on there. Um what else? I'm on WeChat. If you're in China, send me a Wei friend invite. I think my WeChat handle is also Ramsey Dewey. You notice a pattern going here. <laughs> so if you want to find me online, just look up my name. Ramsey Dewey, R-A-M-S-E-Y, D-E-W-E-Y, and in person. Right now, I'm at the UFL Gym in Shanghai, China. That is 2029 Hechuan Road. We're on the second floor. So stop by. Ride a class for free. Again, 2029 Hechuan Road, UFL Gym. Um, Come check us out.
0: All right. So that's where you can find them. Ramsey, thank you very much for being on the show and sharing your, your experiences and your knowledge and your wisdom and your story with me and and the listeners and viewers here on youtube and for my listeners and viewers stay tuned for the wrap up and that's a wrap thank you very much for checking out social jello with angelo if you still are around and you want to support the show check out www.socialjello.com scroll down to the amazon banner and do some shopping doesn't cost you anything it zero costs you zero And they'll send a little bit of my way just for you helping out and showing that you watch the show. And I really appreciate it for you listeners out there. I appreciate you very much. I'm growing very slowly, but surely the show is growing. And I really do appreciate that. And for all of you out there in dangerous areas trying to stay safe, trying to stay healthy, please continue to do so. I'm not an expert in that field. I'm not going to even mention it. But I am going to say that this episode was released in the middle of the second wave of the coronavirus and um, my heart goes out to anybody affected by it and my heart in any way whether it's whether it's economically or I know a lot of gyms have had to close and um, yeah my heart definitely goes out to those people and also my heart goes out to the people that were affected by it and their health because I know a lot of my friends caught it and got really sick and they're still recovering and um, yeah definitely much love and respect and i'll catch you all next time peace